This audio article presents the content of a research article called Recreational Shaming Groups of Facebook Content, Rules and Modministrators Perspectives that was written by me, Maria Muruma Mengel and Karel Loit. We are representing University of Tartu, Estonia and the following text has been published in the scientific journal Convergence, the International Journal of Research into New Media Technologies, in 2023. This article talks about shaming, Facebook groups, social sanctioning, group norms, moderating and refracted publics. As social life and communication move increasingly online, we have experienced the expansion and the normalization of online shaming. That means different forms of semi-public cross-platform condemnation of people and their actions by mass online audiences. Online shamings can be analyzed as combinations of reintegrative shame, correct, forgive, and disintegrative shame, stigmatize, expel social sanctioning practices, usually focusing on the serious disciplinary shaming on the behavior of the offender. We propose that equal attention should be given to what we have termed recreational shaming, humor-based playful collective shaming that often occurs via online platforms seemingly just for the sake of shaming, motivated mainly by social belonging needs and entertainment gratification. By combining the results of standardized content analysis of Facebook recreational shaming groups, 65 of them, and in-depth qualitative interviews with the modmins of the groups, eight of them, we will give an overview of what is being shamed, how groups and modministrators create and enforce rules, and what is the socio-cultural perceived meaning of this practice. We distinguish three spheres of recreational shaming that kind of frame the shame and demonstrate how recreational online shaming is often more about the self than the other. Me performing the act of shaming for entertainment value, to belong in a group. Additionally, we introduce how shaming is used as a self-reflexive tool for behavior correction or base knowledge for dominant tastes. Recently, we have seen the rise of problematic cases that have sprouted from situations where mass audiences engage in online shaming, the semi-public cross-platform condemnation of people and their actions. Massive shaming campaigns focus on various subjects and themes, often crossing the imaginary boundaries of online-offline spheres, resulting in physical, psychological, financial, 
or other kinds of harm. In popular discourse, such large-scale social sanctioning is sometimes referred to as cancel culture, online firestorms, or even culture wars. But we refrain from using these terms as they are laden with normative assumptions and biases. Instead, we will follow the lead of other scholars and use the term online shaming as a central concept denoting social practices where social media and related technologies are used as a platform for shaming individuals for perceived violations in social norms and etiquette. Online shaming can focus on calling out specific people for their behavior, but it can also be a broader shared shaming experience, like the, well, in 2022 it was 152,000 member Facebook group that is called That's It, I'm Wedding Shaming, Non-Ban Happy Edition, where an endless flow of content about weddings is mocked and laughed at. Similar groups on various topics are abundant on Facebook by now, usually having begun as places for community discourse and slowly devolved into spaces for shaming and personal attacks. Shaming practices at the heart of this study share characteristics of effective communication. They are often based on sharing immediate reactions and pre-emotions contributing to and cultivating a culture of instantaneity and the pressure to react and participate urgently. Scholarly work on online shaming has looked either at the broader implications of technology and media on people's reputations and privacy, or separate specific examples and sites of online shaming. Some scholars have analyzed the moral dilemmas and conflicts explicitly related to online public shaming, though people's perceptions and attitudes towards shaming have received relatively little attention, except for young people. In addition, the few efforts to create typologies of online shamings have focused on serious shaming, like digital vigilantism, and have mostly neglected to take fully into consideration the cultural meaning of other forms of shaming. In this article, we will specifically focus on shaming practice seemingly with the primary purpose of entertainment. Although people are engaged in the mass shaming of actual, often identifiable, ordinary people, there seems to be an echo and ethos of, have a laugh, don't take things too seriously. Over the past few years, we have noticed a specific social practice emerging, shaming that takes place just for the sake of shaming itself usually in particular social media groups and pages that have a humorous undertone. Thus, we consider the potential of recreational shaming as a concept. To zoom in on the reintegrative and disintegrative shaming practices. Our study strives to contribute to the subject of shaming by not only exploring the content and dynamics of Facebook shaming groups, but we also aim to understand the role of modministrators of such groups, and we use the term modministrators to refer to both a group's moderators and administrators simultaneously. Modministrators create and modify the rules of groups, but also introduce and communicate the rules to the group, 
to make their decisions more transparent and reasoned. They also block, which means reintegrative practice, and expel this integrative practice, members who have broken these rules, thus shaping the groups, but also platforms, general discourses and practices. Shame is usually defined as a painful internal emotion that arises when a person realizes the ridiculousness, obscenity or social condemnation of their actions. Their failure to live up to standards, norms or ideals that are internalized and associated with self-esteem. In other words, the emotion endangers one's sense of self. So people usually try to avoid evoking that feeling. According to Maybaum, shame is also about failure to live up to public expectations or opinions of reference groups, making the existence of an audience central to shame. Gehm and Scherer have pointed out that once the feeling of shame has occurred in a public setting, the person's reputation is damaged, which is not easy to repair. Shame is a fundamentally social emotion. For it to come into existence, there needs to be other or others, as shaming is a form of social condemnation. Shame is often considered one of the most important emotions because it ensures the stability of social norms and structures without external sanctioning in a situation where someone has violated the norms of a group. Criminologist John Braithwaite has differentiated between two types of shaming, reintegrative and disintegrative. In the case of reintegrative shaming, the community first expresses their disapproval, which may range from mild rebuke to degradation ceremonies. Public shaming used to be an effective punishment, especially in smaller communities, Societies have had different methods for shaming. Stocks, flagellation, branding, sandwich boards and scarlet letters, among other methods of shaming. After this, however, the shamed person is included back into the community and forgiveness takes place. In the case of disintegrative shaming, Braithwaite emphasizes its dire contrast with the former, being a type of shaming that divides the community by creating a class of outcasts and excluding norm violators from the community. Shaming is then focused on the person, not so much on the actions and behavior. With online shaming, much of the public attention has been on specific people who become infamous because of their actions, words and personal history. Notable examples of this first wave of online shamings include Justine Sacco and Lindsay Stone. Stone posted a photo on her Facebook page that showed her joking around at a war memorial. Sacco tweeted, Going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. Intended to mock American ignorance of South Africa. Mass nightmare audiences decoded the jokes as actual messages of disrespect and racism, turning into a shaming campaign for the original posters and causing a lot of emotional, reputational 
and material damage to both Sacco and Stone. These cases are clear evidence of what Solove pointed out. Online shaming often tends to spiral out of control. The punishment does not fit the crime, and people's lives can be ruined for rather minor transgressions. Oftentimes, online shaming campaigns revolve around not even transgressions, but rather mundane pieces of information taken out of their original context, presented without contextual integrity and tacit knowledge. It is important to note the central role of humour in shaming, as people have widely used ridicule and mockery as a strategy to point out someone's deviation from the norm. In online shaming, sarcasm, irony and competition for reactions play a major part, and the performative practice often revolves around making the wittiest remark. Absurdity and nihilism are also attributed to online humour as dominant features. To summarize, online shaming has many forms, from specific notorious cases of misjudging vast online audiences' sense of humour to ridiculing and exposing over-curated self-presentation and consumeristic lifestyles like influencers in the wild account on Instagram, to naming and shaming specific people, to pandemic shaming, drunk spring breakers and coughing commuters and so on and so on. These cases may be seen as a new and often terrifying sign of the times when there is nothing fundamentally new about online shaming. However, what is new is the rapid development of technology and the context collapse. People with different socio-demographic backgrounds, motivations and perceptions of social norms are brought together, often perceiving to have an invisibility cloak. The illusion of anonymity appears in online environments. No one knows me, no one cares, no one is focusing on me. Until they do. When populations expanded and social life moved away from smaller communities, people's geographical mobility increased and shaming seemed to lose most of its power. New technologies and the rise of the networked publics created the perfect conditions for pervasive shaming's evolutionary jump as persistence, searchability, replicability and scalability are the main characteristics in social media. In other words, information online can be tough to delete, easily found via searches, copied endlessly, potentially becoming visible to large audiences. Contemporary screen-mediated sociality where people offer glimpses or thorough overviews of their lives via social media has been described as a state of mutual surveillance or omnopticon. In other words, the contemporary norm of technologically mediated constant availability and visibility has formed and moved into a state of continuous mutual surveillance where every user acts both as an agent and a subject, constantly surveilling other internet users while being surveilled themselves. This omnoptic structure 
is a prerequisite for intense social control and online shaming of average users on a mass scale. In a way, the power imbalance within the social sanctioning of masses versus an individual creates a guilt. The perceived misbehavior of the shamed entwined with the guilty pleasure of partaking in a mass reaction to it. The latter injustice is usually the reason why online shamings can seek semi-private spaces and create their own walled gardens or magic circles, free and hidden from everyday norms and rules. Suitably to these observances, Crystal Abedin has proposed a companion framework to Dana Boyd's networked publics, refracted publics, that usually occur through private groups, locked platforms or ephemeral contents. According to Abedin, refracted publics often form in vernacular culture below the radar, consisting of subversive, risky and hidden practices on social media, fitting for the object of our study. Mirroring Boyd's conditions of networked publics, Abedin proposes transience, short-term ephemerality of content. Secondly, discoverability, the content is found, not knowingly searched for. Decodability, which means even if content is duplicated, it is illegible due to missing situated context. And silo sociality, which means visibility of content is intensely communal and localized, and these are characteristics of refracted publics. Additionally, she conceptualizes the general trends of such publics, among which Abedin lists hyper-competitive attention economies and perpetual content saturation, which impedes meaningful consumption and results in an infodemic. Condemning the words and acts of people via mass online shaming campaigns has become a huge part of digital culture and is worthy of a longer look. It almost seems that people have become unable to engage in civil inattention, pretending to not listen or ignoring the conversations as a social norm of respect, the act of giving someone space. The expectation of forgiveness may be unfounded in Omnopticon, and the shamed can more likely look forward to the forgetfulness of people in the context of information abundance. Facebook provides a platform for special interest groups, pages and accounts, very often set up by the average users of these platforms. One can create a public or private group depending in the group's content uh, is to be shown only to users inside the group or to users outside the group as well. Considering the biggest groups have over a hundred thousand members, private is often just the platform's own label and does not adequately describe the nature of the group. Structurally, Facebook groups require administrators and or moderators who create, support and control the discourse in these online environments. 
as a critical side note, by delegating policy, control and governance to moderators, social media platforms can reduce labor costs and responsibility in regulating their service, while leaving the impression of being champions for freedom of speech and cultural expression. Many of the shaming groups at the heart of this study could be considered to fall under the left book category. It's a network of ideologically leftist Facebook groups, and it's implied by the fact that many groups use and explicitly state a specific combination of rules which seek to protect the members from bigotry, racism, homophobia, and in some occasions ban the supporting of right-wing politics. On the other hand, the flexibility, anonymity and generative power of online networks make them excellent realms for fighting oppression. On the other hand, the same characteristics make these networks efficient at enacting oppression at the individual, organizational, national and global level. So people who share the core values of the groups will perceive the group's rule enforcements as justified efforts, while others may seem to see them as toxic and threatening, creating more drama that adds to the entertainment value of these groups. As we see, the field is bursting with subtopics to explore and nuances to study. In this article, we will map the landscape of Facebook recreational shaming groups and try to advance the understanding on the role of mod administrators of such groups. We set off to find answers to three main research questions. What are dominant characteristics, topics and content of the typical recreational shaming groups of Facebook? How are the rules of the recreational shaming groups created and enforced? And finally, how do administrators of these groups perceive the cultural and societal meaning of the practice? This study was conducted in two stages. In the end of 2019, we carried out a standardized content analysis of Facebook shaming groups, 65 of them. After getting a better overview and a thorough look into a specific site of this niche but systematic online shaming taking place in social media, we conducted in-depth qualitative online interviews, eight of them, with the administrators of these groups in the spring of 2020. Although some of the specific groups we examined might have disappeared by now, groups have shut down and been re-established, the general landscape is still similar and thriving in 2023. Facebook has provided a structure that enables and embraces collective shaming practices where groups' central topics vary from oddly specific to broader universally shared experiences. Usually, these groups are not public, but rather they hide from Facebook as private communities with tight internal moderation. Admittedly, the thresholds for being accepted into this part of the refracted publics, or fragmented affective publics as they have been referred to, are noticeably low. One has to simply request membership 
by filling out a short application form, which aims to verify whether the applicant has familiarized themselves with the group's rules. It is usually a matter of few clicks, the applicant most likely being approved in 24 hours to join the group and start shaming or participating in this collective experience otherwise. We formed a complete sample of 92 of all Facebook groups that met the main criterion. Group can be found on Facebook via the search term shaming. And shaming was chosen as a keyword because most recreational shaming groups on Facebook use the format that's it, I'm shaming, leading us to a more defined focus and research material. The criterion excludes all groups that do not have the specific word in their name, even if they are actually engaging in shaming, such as group called please show to Jim, ha ha, or OK Karen, and so on. After a brief initial analysis of the groups, their introductions and other general info available, we removed groups that were not focused on entertainment-driven online shaming. The criteria for our final sample were threefold. One, the posts are not addressing criminal acts or situations where people are put in danger. Two, shamed people are anonymized or at least attempted to do so. So no name and shame sanctioning practices were included. And three, the group is not focused on fighting body shaming, as those focused on supporting members who had been body shamed, sharing experiences and so on. After excluding the groups that did not meet the above mentioned criteria, 65 shaming groups remained in the sample for the standardized content analysis. We found standardized content analysis to fit the research aims and design as it enables us to analyze large amounts of textual data and provide structure to the data by interpreting it in a systematic manner, examining trends and patterns. In general, we coded four main categories for all groups in our sample. Name and main theme, publicness of the group, the number of members, and groups stated rules and written norms. Shortcomings of standardized content analysis are usually tied to the data reduction process, coding text into rigid categories closer to the scientific ideal of objectiveness, but at the same time the content is reduced to triviality. Latent and hidden meanings, abstract notions, non-standard and peripheral cases, and details can be overlooked. Thus, a second stage of the study was necessary, a method that would allow us to understand the phenomenon and the roles people carry in these groups. By interviewing the administrators of these Facebook shaming groups, we aim to understand the typical dynamics of the groups, relationships within them, rule creation and violations, sanctions within the group, the perceived meaning and function of the recreational shaming. Altogether, we contacted 168 administrators of Facebook shaming groups, but only eight agreed to participate in the study. Low participation might be due to various reasons from timing, 
people were trying to cope with the COVID-19 crisis at this time, to information overload as larger groups, administrators get numerous private messages, recruitment might be lost among others. And obviously, many of the groups are perceived to be fringe, private or semi-public spaces away from public attention. Therefore, administrators might want to avoid participating in such studies. Also, social shaming practices might be perceived as morally dubious by the administrators themselves. So they would want to avoid a reflexive interview situation. In order to prevent linking the information shared by the interviewees to them later, confidentiality and anonymity were promised to the participants. Therefore, in this study, we do not address the names or initials of the individuals, will not link specific groups or other characteristics that would allow the interviewees to be identified. Instead, we mark our eight participants alphabetically. Our participants have been administrating in their respective groups for one to two years, with the only exception of participant H, who has been a administrator for over five years. Groups vary in their topics. Some are mocking weddings and marriage, some food or pets, some are shaming specific apps or companies. It was up to the interviewee to decide if they wanted to participate via a video call, audio call, or conduct the interview as written communication. As none of the interviewees preferred the video call format, we conducted three synchronous audio interviews and five asynchronous written interviews. Interview data was analyzed using thematic qualitative content analysis that allows the researchers to arrive at the logic and patterns in the material during the analysis, rather than assuming them at an early age of the study, as in quantitative approaches. After conducting the interviews, we transcribed the audio recordings and copied the text of the written interview conversations. In the first phase of coding, rough codes and in vivo codes were assigned to the text, like friendship, tight community, and so on. In the second coding phase, large number of codes from the previous stage were summarized and systematized. Then the codes were organized into categories and themes, structured around our research questions. Overview of recreational shaming groups on Facebook. At a glance, shaming groups can be categorized into two. First, groups that engage in shaming different objects and belongings, like failed DIY crafts, fonts, cars, thrift store items or Christmas trees, but also pets. Secondly, groups that engage in shaming people, husbands, in-laws, people's behavior, from proposals to burials, or their appearance. Many interviewed administrators quickly emphasized that an important distinction must be made between groups based on what is being shamed. Object shaming was seen as more acceptable whilst shaming that targets people's appearances, for example with poor sense of style or makeup, was sometimes frowned upon. It is worth noting that out of eight interviewed modmins, four were from groups that essentially shame people and their behavior. 
These modministrators described their group's activities as light-hearted pokes against people who take something too seriously. Self-loathing cringe group making fun of their own community or a safe outlet to voice your opinion on things that you find are ugly. Even if people and their behavior are at the heart of the recreational shaming, it is often perceived as morally justifiable when the shamees are anonymized and abstract. A quote from participant C. A lot of the shaming that is in the shaming groups and in my group is about mocking somebody, but in the abstract and not the actual person. As you've mentioned, there are many rules about anonymizing the screenshots that we share, and I think that part of the point of all these groups, and my group too, is to have a laugh. The pleasure of pointing out that something is stupid and weird and dumb, or in some way funny, but often not a nice funny, and not have to actually do anything with it. Not have to confront the person or decide if we want to teach them or shun them. From the quote we can see that reintegrative teach them and disintegrative shun them sanctions offer a general categorization schema for online shamings. Within them, not only serious disciplinary shamings can be distinguished, but entertaining recreational ones too. We can imagine one axis with reintegrative and disintegrative social sanctioning, and another axis mapping serious disciplinary shamings and entertaining recreational shamings. So Facebook groups analyzed here fall into the space of reintegrative, disintegrative, recreational shamings. Recreational shaming can be perceived and internalized frame that relieves the shamers from the burden of responsibility or the moral deliberation over their actions. It is all just in good fun. One study also found that people engaged in serious online shamings might not consider the activity to necessarily be shaming, labeling it something else. For the sake of describing the landscape in more detail, we zoomed in and formed seven categories, into which the shaming groups can be divided. First, there were groups where people make fun and shame objects that people have made or bought, whether it be food, wreaths, cars or clocks. And it was groups that we called you own made something weird. 14 of the groups were like that. Secondly, you do weddings weird groups that shame various aspects of wedding rituals like engagement rings, proposals, dresses and so on. 13 groups were like that. This was such a dominant theme and also previously noted in journalistic media, that we decided to code these groups separately, although they could be analytically placed into several other categories as well. Third category, you look weird. People's choices in tattoos, hairstyles, makeup and nail art, in other words, people's bodies and choices about the appearance of these bodies are at the heart of this shaming. 
Fourth, you are behaving weird. Shaming people's behavior in a specific situation. For example, parking cars, trading things on Facebook Marketplace or swap shops, men trying to impress women online. Nine groups fall under this category. Nine groups also fall under fifth category of you have a weird pet. Shaming groups mostly focused on dogs, but also pigs and chickens. Next, five groups fall under the category of I or you have weird relatives. These are groups that specifically shame in-laws and spouses, mostly husbands. And finally, four groups that fall under I, you are weird fans of something. And these are oddly specific groups that shame fandoms and very often engage in self-shaming. Or as one modministrator put it, it's usually self-cringe who are like, oh god, I like this thing, but do I like it too much? We see that the groups have very different operational frameworks. Some are working on a nearly denotative level, directly shaming what or who is visible on the screenshot. Others are situated in a meta-level context that requires advanced cultural literacy for the decodable text. For example, making fun of the shaming groups and the shaming or cringe genre itself. Like the group that is called I can't tell if I'm in the ring shaming group or the nail shaming group. So can we distinguish shaming as a disciplinary sanctioning and shaming as a genre-specific inside joke? Imagine three different spheres of recreational shaming. The broadest one is made up of widely accepted socio-cultural norms that do not necessarily need much specific knowledge. That is where shaming as a clear-cut social sanctioning practice takes place. Trying to let people know that certain behavior is not acceptable. There we can see posts that make fun of people who are inconsiderate towards their family members, who ignore their pets' droppings, who park their car incorrectly, do not follow grammar rules and so on. Around 10 groups were like that. Second sphere of recreational shaming in our study's context is based on style or taste conflicts and or shaming someone's perceived inadequacy. Largely a sphere of subjective preferences out of which dominant preferences form, becoming part of cultural literacy. Such groups, and there were 37 of these, have content from mocking personal style choices and cooking skills to ugly dogs and cheesy proposals. And third, most narrow sphere of recreational shaming has to do with a, a very specific inside joke or jokes, where the participant has to have the right interpretive lens, or insiderness, in order to understand and decode the text. 
Some groups have set their focus on such a narrow scope. For example, shaming Disney ears, clocks, wreaths, or ill-fitting fonts in written text. That they have become a commentary, a reference on the general shaming group's scene. 18 of the groups were like that. As the second and third sphere of recreational shaming require specific cultural literacy or an interpretive lens, it ensures that the decodability of the content outside the group remains rather low. Furthermore, the fact that most of these groups are private from the general public, being on a specific social media site and loosely guarded by approval of join requests, contributes to the creation of us and them, and silo sociality of this refracted public, as Abedin put it. To broadly characterize the typical members of these groups, according to the modministrators, shamers are more likely to be white, Caucasian women, of various ages, who hold liberal and left-leaning views, and who share weak social bonds. Still, the members of shaming groups typically function as an ideal audience for each other, often modelled in our heads based on ourselves, a community made up of mirror images of the user. Private groups, majority of our content analysis sample, encourage people to be more candid in their expression because they perceive the shaming groups as a safe environment. A quote from participant F. You're not going to even shame yourself if you don't feel shielded from the rest of the world. So I think with shaming groups, there is the feeling of label, the door is closed so I can talk now. End quote. In other words, when people are posting content in these groups, in the perceived backstage, they expect members of the community to react in a desired way share the original posters, OPs, taste, preferences, sense of humor, values. Often they are correct in these assumptions. Other times, though, they find nightmare audiences instead. Many modmins described conflicts between the members, which often requires interference. In those instances, the users that have misbehaved are punished by muting or throwing them out of the group, engaging in intra-group re- or disintegrative sanctioning. Muting a badly behaved member is essentially re-integrative sanctioning. The member is made aware of their violation of the group's rules and norms, but is later welcomed back into the community. However, the case of banning a group member is an example of disintegrative sanctioning. The person that has violated the rules is thrown out of the group. A little bit about creating and enforcing rules in shaming groups. The modmins were very aware of the dynamics that groups go through as they grow, often emphasizing their role's importance to grow with it. As they put it, not needing rules for a group of friends, but needing rules to make a nation work. Enforcing rules is often a laborious undertaking, volunteer work that controls and shapes the semi-public discourses. Two modministrators compared their experiences with 
managing several Facebook groups, acknowledging the difficulty of managing a larger shaming group. A quote from participant C. I've been an admin in a 100,000 member group, and rules were very needed because among 100,000 members, there are many more assholes than among 3,000 members. So rules needed to be clear, to make it easier, to just not argue with people and say, okay, you broke this and this rule, ban or mute, and everybody else, don't do that. End quote. This also helps to explain why shaming groups often have thorough rules, although it is important to note that 18 groups out of 65 did not have any rules. It helps to justify the sanctioning acts of the administrators. Four interviewees were involved in setting the rules themselves, and some of them pointed out that other similar groups were an important source of inspiration. Very often, the rules are borrowed and remixed from other groups, usually specific to so-called left-book groups. In order to give an overview of the norms and rules in shaming groups, we systematized all the rules stated in the group page into five different dominant categories. First category, keep it polite and decent type of rules. 39 of such occasions were coded. Respect for each other is emphasized explicitly towards in-group individuals, but not that much towards the people shamed and depicted in screenshots. Sometimes rules frame the shame and state the allowed scope of shaming, permitting, for example, nails or dogs, but not other aspects, like a person's body shape or facial features. Racism, homophobia, body shaming and political topics are usually named as off-limits, as well as posts about minors and content that goes against Facebook's censorship policy. Second, keep the focus. 31 times were such rules coded. Here, more general calls for genre purity and staying on topic are made but also more specifically stated that spam or advertising, self-shaming and humble bragging, which means bragging masked by a complaint or humility, praise instead of shame and viral posts are barred. Thirdly, ensure anonymity in 31 cases. Requiring members to anonymize the people they post about This can actually sometimes translate into keep our group a secret category, as one interviewed modmin explained this rule to exist, for guaranteeing that the people being shamed would stay unaware of it and the post would fly below the radar, as Abedin has called refracted publics. In a way, it tries to ensure minimal harm to people who are not curating their online presentation carefully and drawing the attention of shamers. But at the same time, the rule of not mixing online and offline spheres is expected don't go real life, as it is often referred to. This rule is designed to avoid weaponized context, where distinct socio-cultural contexts are intentionally collapsed. Harassing and contacting people outside of the group experience is perceived as a strong violation of shaming group's norms. 
From the field of game research, the concept of a magic circle can be applied here too. So shaming groups like games create their own enclaves where they create a new reality with its own rules and norms that players accept within this game or circle and that do not necessarily apply outside the circle. Next, the rule of respect the modmins. 20 times we coded that. These types of rules state the hierarchical importance of the modministrator. Restricting the blocking, contacting and harassing of the modmins as they are free to block or mute members of the group. An important sub-rule here is the avoidance of reporting content to Facebook, as this will sometimes result in platform re- or disintegratively sanctioning the groups, warning the groups or shutting them down completely. Notice the conflict. Discouraging contacting modmins, but then encouraging notifying them via monitored code words instead of reporting. Next, we have a set of rules that can be called deal with the community. Seven times we notice this. It's a version of toughen up. Some rules specifically revolve around taking responsibility for one's content creation and facing the consequences of social sanctioning when erring. Such rules can mean no turning off comments on posts and no dirty deletes. Dirty delete denotes situations where original posters, OPs, return to delete their post after initial reactions and responses if they differ from their expected ones. That is, ideal audiences turning out to be nightmare ones. The modministrators explained that the dirty delete rule is used as a measure to hold someone accountable for their wrongdoing and teach them a lesson. A quote from participant B. I have this rule in both the groups I admin for the fact that deleting content means that they are not taking accountability for their actions. Posts that got awry also serve as an education to not just the content provider, but those observing it. In the age of the internet, it is so easy to sweep things under the carpet rather than trying to learn anything. End quote. In fact, there are specific Facebook tag groups dedicated to shaming OPs from various groups. Examples of the bigger ones are called OP, not even nationwide is on your side, with 27,000 members. OP getting lightly sautéed, seared on both sides and roasted at 350 degrees, with 24,000 members. And OP, you fucking pinecone, with nearly 9,000 members. So in a way, reactions to posts gone wrong and dirty deletes are forming into degradation ceremonies and designated spheres of recreational shaming. Here we see a tension between two paradigms. Abidin's refracted publics with its risky and hidden practices often driven towards ephemerality. Here one moment, gone the other. 
but more administrators and above-mentioned OP shaming groups are enforcing rules and norms from the viewpoint of Dana Boyd's networked publics, where content is supposed to be persistent, expressions automatically recorded and archived, and consequences to actions clear. Now, let's turn our attention to Modministrator's perception of online shaming as a socio-cultural practice. This integrative and reintegrative social sanctioning usually focuses on the offender. The practices are oriented towards changing someone's behavior or stigmatizing and expelling them. When it comes to recreational shaming, it is more about the self than the offender. After all, in most of the cases, the shamee is part of different fragmented publics and will most likely not know that they are being shamed in these groups. So why engage in such shaming practices? Belonging and socializing were repeatedly mentioned as an important motivator for joining and participating in shaming groups. Members can express their opinions and discuss various topics with others, even seeking advice and guidance from others, sharing a sense of community. A quote from participant B. Obviously for the fun, but also people want to be with people with similar mindsets. I finally have the opportunity to laugh at stuff that people bang on about being amazing. Well, Harry Potter is a good example for me. You can often feel alienated by people who do like these things, so it's nice to have somewhere to have a laugh and vent about it. End quote. Humor and laughter have been known to foster such social bonds, and it is as it is a shared activity that promotes social congruity. But there is also something deeper in laughing about specific others and otherness creating a stronger we-sense among the group. In a way, we even see sorts of anti-fandoms developing in these groups, those who strongly dislike a given text or genre, considering it insane, stupid, morally bankrupt or aesthetic drivel. Unlike hate, which is arguably a destructive process, anti-fandom can be a constructive form of engagement, So, shaming Duolingo, Harry Potter fans or Disney can become a part of person's shared identity in the effective publics. A quote from participant F. I think we all kind of just love to hate things. I think hate is a strong emotion. I think any strong emotion binds people, be it hate or comedy. You think something's funny or you think something is very sad, or you think something is very romantic. Extreme emotions drive most of social media, because you're not dealing with somebody on a personal level, you can only deal with reactions. Quite expectedly, the interviewed modministrator saw entertainment as the most important function of shaming groups. Echoing once again the principle of have a laugh, don't take things too seriously, as the central motto of digital cultures. But even if recreational shaming seems to be just for the giggles and entertainment, 
Simultaneously sharing a sense of belonging, many other functions and motivations are evident. Perhaps most interestingly, for example, one of the interviewees suggested an additional self-reflexive behavior adjusting level that functions as an anchor or reference point. A quote from participant F. There is a lot of commentary on what we think is both something we like and something that we maybe like too much, and it's measuring ourselves against other people to see that I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as that person. And I think shaming groups, where it's making fun of weddings, is a good example We use use it to be like, okay, well, when I have a wedding, I could do I I could do that thing, or maybe I should do that thing. So I think it's also checking how you should see the world, which is totally unhealthy and not great. But I think it's checking in with the community, being like, is this still cool? All right, or would I be ashamed or shamed if I like that thing? End quote. In other words, shaming groups are used and trusted as a community, a testing ground for social norms. So, test shaming something within a community allows people to use shaming groups to check what is acceptable among their important others and what is not. So, interestingly, recreational shaming can function as a predictive or preventive strategy to avoid breaking certain social norms oneself. One interviewee described how a group's climate and function can change over time, perhaps because of the growing popularity, but perhaps because of the other societal processes. A quote from participant D. Now, and I don't know how much of this is because of the quarantine, Because it's only been in the last month or so. It's turned into a lot of people tearing each other down for their opinions. And like I said, I don't know how much of this is that this is really a lot of people's only means of socializing. It's Facebook or social media in general. And people are feeling cooped up and angry. And this is an easy way to take out your anger. End quote. So we see that in in some cases, shaming groups can meet escapist needs and gratifications, directing attention away from the stress of everyday life. Often that can happen by breaking the social norm of not being mean to people, not engaging in civil inattention. Simultaneously, the discussions also highlighted the idea that shaming groups can improve a person's attitude towards their own lives, creating a sense of gratitude that stems from downwards social comparison. When discussing the type of shaming, is it reintegrative or disintegrative or something else at all? Opinions varied. One interviewee was of the opinion that the nature of shaming in Facebook groups is rather reintegrative. As in many groups, the shaming serves a purpose of giving advice and pointing out mistakes made. Considering that the shamees are usually not present in this shared moment, this seems implausible. But as a self-reflexive tool for the community of shamers, 
It can be the basis of behavior correction or base knowledge for dominant tastes and cultural literacy. This integrative shaming was mainly exemplified by the shaming of group members. If someone is being homophobic, racist or otherwise discriminates against others in the group, breaking the norms of left book, they will be expelled from the group. While shaming is usually an activity that centers around the actions of others, recreational online shaming is much more about the self, me performing the act of shaming for entertainment value to belong in a group. Members of shaming groups would not engage in these practices in their semi-public profiles as it would bring condemnation and getting shamed themselves. In a sense, they probably perceive their actions as gossiping or even bullying, not shaming. In this article, we have explored some aspects of Facebook shaming groups that revolve around recreational shaming and sanctioning, humor-based, playful collective shamings that often take place via online platforms, motivated mainly by social belonging needs and entertainment gratifications. Such shaming can function as reintegrative, shame, correct, forgive, or disintegrative, shame, stigmatize, expel but also satisfy the shamer's needs of belonging and socializing. Furthermore, as we discovered in our study, recreational shaming is used as a self-reflexive tool to increase one's cultural literacies and understand dominant tastes and preferences. At the core, we could ask if the practices described even fit under the concept of shaming. After all, the shamees are usually unaware of the attention and thus they are not being socially sanctioned. We argue that Boyd's concept of networked publics from 2010 still holds its potential, allowing all published and shared material to persist, be replicable, searchable and scalable. And the increasing efficiency of search engines and social networks makes it a question of when people become aware of the shaming, not if. Refracted publics can be off the radar, but also register on the radar, whilst interpreted as something else altogether. And recreational shaming fits the latter description well. Often framed as just a joke, recreational shaming is a new form of entertainment that takes place in the short form of participation. For example, likes and comments. Being unable to grasp the scale of collective actions, the norm of ephemeral content and not reflecting on the cumulative effect of tiny communicative actions can spiral the scope of sanctioning out of control. Importantly, we move away from the quantitative perspective. Most do not even find out about the 30,000 people mocking them. We move towards the qualitative but some do, and it can break them. The potential for the anonymous mockery to turn into a fixated mass shaming of specific people is definitely there. And in a way, not being aware of the fact that you are, yes, in an often sloppily anonymized mode, 
the target of recreational shaming, it's even worse. It is a metaphorical, unexploded, informational landmine waiting for the discoverability condition of refracted publics to unfold, to be discovered and stumbled upon. But indeed, with the evolution from traditional shaming to recreational online shaming, the focus has shifted from the offender who is being shamed in two directions. Partly to the shamer, who is performing the shaming for entertainment and belonging. And partly to shaming a type or group of people, their actions and tastes. The practice of shaming anonymized strangers in Facebook groups still contributes to norm contestation. That is, what is considered to be normal, desirable, despisable for the members of the group. This was exemplified by the aspect of test shaming by the members, wanting to make sure their own behavior and tastes are socially acceptable, they first test shame someone else. If we deem this phenomenon something else, for example, just ridicule or just mockery, then the focus of contesting social norms would be less in focus, and the practice could be disregarded as frivolous entertainment. After all, one of the main purposes of shaming is to ensure that people conform to social norms by setting an example of what society does and does not accept. Recreational shaming groups of Facebook can focus on objects, rituals, communities, people's behavior, skills, bodies, choices about these bodies, and we distinguished three spheres of recreational shaming that kind of frame the shame sphere of widely accepted socio-cultural norms and serious shaming of people who have not followed these norms. Secondly, sphere of subjective preferences and perceptions, where we can see clashes over style, taste, culture, literacy and skill gaps. And thirdly, a sphere of highly encoded in-group meta-jokes, where shaming functions as a cultural commentary and pure entertainment. Shaming groups are mostly private to a certain degree, forming a magic circle of sorts that creates an enclave inside everyday life, where different reality forms, a reality where rampant continuous shaming of people is acceptable. Contradictory or disputing voices are muted by excluding them from the group, meaning that the other content is visible to the group's homogeneous members, further strengthening an echo chamber effect, an example of silo sociality. The concept of private group is of course disputable, with spaces of networked publics that have, for example, 150,000 members who gained access by clicking yes or no on some pre-screening questions, and hundreds of tag groups that are connected via these masses. Despite thousands of members, the groups operate in almost cult-like secrecy, as the act of shaming someone without their knowledge of it goes against the generally accepted norm of do not gossip. But very much like gossip, recreational online shaming is a guilty pleasure for many. There is irony to recreational shaming. 
Members of the groups understand that shaming other people for fun might not be accepted by others. Therefore, in fear of other people's condemnation, a safe haven for shaming is created. However, when in violation of the group's rules and norms, the members might find themselves the target of shaming as a plot twist. Practices of reintegrative or disintegrative shaming take place where the person is made aware of their mistakes and either muted or banned from the group. Various shaming practices have become embedded in people's media uses, usually beginning as a Bakhtinian carnivalistic sense of the world, but soon normalized and internalized as forms of accepted social practices and structures. Some have argued that we have entered a post-shame society, and the business-as-usual recreational shaming practices might have an impact on its ascent and contribute to the scope and spread of online shaming. Indeed, we have focused on this specific phenomenon because it is easy to discard, just for laughs, practices, as frivolous and insignificant. We stress that macro-societal changes can slither in under the cloak of ephemeral communication, under the radar silo social refracted publics. When people act in large groups, feeling separated by screens and thus somewhat anonymous, their agency is diluted and even attributed to the technology, and recreational shaming as a shameful practice can evolve into a societal shift. Thank you for listening. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas, send them my way.